Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Today we consider three biblical perspectives on the darkness of sin and how it opens our eyes to the beautiful light of King Jesus. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and if you're with us this morning and don't have a Bible, or you don't, have, there's one in front of you or on page 939, 939. I do have good music taste, by the way. My kids, as soon as Nate said that, there was a snicker in the back row. And it's, you ever heard of Judah and the lion? Anyone ever heard of Judah and the lion? Take it back. This is just Judah, no lion, okay, so... If you're curious, little plug. We don't know how good things are until there's bad things. In the beloved Harry Potter series, J.K. Rowling does an interesting thing with the antagonist, with the bad guy. Although he shows up in every book, except for the third one, there's this ever-increasing sense of darkness and evil that grows. In the first book, He Who Must Not Be Named is portrayed as a bad guy. And at the end of reading book one, you all thought after reading book one, that was cute, right? But after you got done reading book six, did you think that was cute anymore? Because there is this increasing sense of evil. And when you look at the victory that Harry achieved through his selfless love for his friends in book one, Versus book seven, there is a much greater joy. There's a much greater expectation of excitement of what happened in book seven than in book one. Why? Because things the same way in our spiritual lives. If sin is small to you, so is your salvation. If Voldemort is like he is in book one to you, your sin is like book one, he's just on the back of a bad guy's head that you only see occasionally, you'll get a small salvation. But if you see he who must not be named as the one who is destroying all of humanity and destroying relationships and bringing chaos, then when he is defeated, there's great joy. In fact, in the Christian life, the degree to which you see the gravity of your sin will be the degree to which you experience the grace of God. Grace is not amazing, no matter how many times you sing the song, until you see how utterly destructive your evil, sinful desires are. Perfect timing. We're in the midst of a series on sin. Not because we want to just take a baseball bat to all of you and just tell you how awful you are. We're in the midst of a series on sin because we want the grace of God to actually be amazing. We want you to actually see how much you need Jesus. I was just talking with someone out in the hallway about raising kids, and he said, man, all it does is make me aware of how bad I am. I'm like, right, it makes you aware of how much you need Jesus. And any solution that we run to in the midst of our lives that is not running to Jesus 
It's going to be a small salvation. It's going to be a small win. And so the Bible presents this picture of humanity not to make us feel bad or have low self-esteem, but presents this picture because it shows us the greatness of God's love and God's grace. Romans chapter 1, look at how Paul portrays humanity. I'm going to read about 15 verses, so my point is I want you to catch the sense of what's happening, not necessarily everything that's going on. Romans 1.18, it's on page 939 again in your Bible in front of you, says this, The wrath of God is being revealed against, from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Because since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are actually without excuse. Although they knew God, they didn't glorify Him as God, didn't give thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being in birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the grading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for the lie. And they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even the women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so they would do what ought not to be done. They are filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but approve of those who practice them. That is a picture of humanity apart from Jesus. That is who you are apart from Jesus. And this morning, we want to look at sin from three perspectives. The universality of sin... Number two, the corruption of sin. And then finally this morning, not just universal and the, um, what did I just say? Corruption, but the separation. Thank you. Yes, those three aspects. So let's look at, we'll pray and jump into those. Father, we need you to show us who we are in ourselves so that we might run to Jesus and find him to be beautiful and attractive. And we thank you that in Jesus, we are forgiven. So, help us to run to him this morning as we look at what the scriptures say about sin. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Number one, sin is universal. The Bible is replete with the idea that every human being is a sinner. Romans 5, chapter 12 says this, that just as sin entered the world through one man, and that one man is Adam, and we looked at that story last week in Genesis chapter 3, that because of his sin entered into the world, and in this way, death came to all people because all have sins. Here's one verse that connects the sin of the Garden of Eden of Adam to the sin of all humanity that now breeds death. But Christianity is not the only religion or the only people to testify about the universalness, universality of sin. I don't know about you, but frivolous people think of life as a game. I read a tweet yesterday. Twitter is like one of those blessings and curses all in the same day, five minutes. But I did read an interesting tweet yesterday. It said, I'm be- one individual wrote this, I'm becoming increasingly more aware that people are very content to ignore everything going around them, just give them a little contentment in Netflix and they're fine. And I thought, man, that is what we like to do. Just ignore things, not think about things, just go about life in our own way. But if we stop and think, if we actually begin to process who we are, begin to process what's going on in the world, you know why we don't like to do that? Because you just find brokenness. It's not fun to explore yourself. Because <laughs> when you do, you come up with what the history of religions and philosophy testify, that you are a sinner. All the different religions throughout the history of the world have some type of universal consciousness and some supreme being. This is why they are always offering to the gods. They're always sacrificing. There's always priests. There's altars reeking with the blood of sacrifices. I watched uh, Vikings. I don't know if you've seen Vikings on History Channel. I like those type of shows, the history pieces. And it's very interesting the way they portray their religion. And they go to England, and they, have anyone seen this? They capture this Roman Catholic priest and bring him over. And the show is a lot about the the combating religions. And what you see with these Viking religions is blood and gore and sacrifices. That is just replete throughout history. And why are they doing that? Because they know that they have offended the gods. Missionaries, everywhere they go, find this reality. But it's just not religions, it's the history of philosophy. Early Greek philosophers were wrestling with the problem of moral evil. Where did it come from? Why is everything so bad? And to this day, people are still debating this reality. And they are all constrained to admit the universality of what the Bible calls sin. They might call it evil, they might call it brokenness. Until the 18th century, there is this superficial optimism that all of that evil was going to go away. Well, 200 years later, that experiment has died. Religion, philosophy, is noting throughout history the history and the reality of the universality of sin. And the way the Bible speaks about this is the Bible calls it sin is articulated throughout Scripture. I mean, you look at the opening in Genesis chapter 3, and after the beginning, the first sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, what is the very next story recorded? Anyone know? Cain and Abel stealing a cookie from their mom's cookie jar, right? 
No, Cain and Abel and the fratricide and the killing and the murder and the jealousy that leads all the way to the flood where it says every man's inclination was evil and they were doing violence and God was sorry that he even made man because of how wicked they were. This is the first six chapters, eight chapters of the Bible. And Paul and the New Testament writers pick up on this. It's on the screen. Here are some verses that speak to this. It, Paul quoting Psalm 14, by the way. So this is in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Romans chapter 3 says this. There is no one righteous. No one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Everyone is turned away. They become together worthless. And there is no one who does good, not even one. Again, you're like, did you repeat that? No, I didn't. Paul did. That's his redundancy. Romans 3.23, there's no difference between the Jew or Gentile. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're like, well, that's a New Testament thing. Here's an Old Testament verse, 1 Kings chapter 8. When they, the people of Israel, sin against you, Yahweh, parentheses, there is no one who does not sin. And you become angry with them and give them over to their enemies. See, the Bible is speaking of this moral evil that the philosophers and religions are always speaking to, and it calls it sin, that every person who is born is a sinner. Now, that, I don't know about you, but that, boggle, that bothers me. Why am I a sinner because of Adam? How many of you are like, that's stupid? Right? Like, that's ridiculous. Why in the world am I a sinner just because of what Adam did a long time ago? You put in your number of years. That doesn't seem fair. That seems ludicrous. It seems ridiculous. And yet, as Romans 5.12, as we quoted at the very beginning, it says this, sin came into the world through one man, and through that one man came death and sin, because everyone is now sinned. And it's astonishing to me that the mystery of how sin is actually transmitted from Adam to me, this mystery that is furthest from my understanding, that it is also the very thing that, which if I don't have it, I can't make sense of the world. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Like, if I just don't believe in the transmission of sin, that I'm not a sinner, then how do I make sense of all of the evil in my life and all of the evil in the world? You have to deal with it. You have to think through where did it come from. And it may seem unfair, it may not seem like the right thing to do, but the Bible is telling us that we all inherited sin from Adam. I don't know if I can help you with this, but here's some things that help me with it. Remembering that humanity is not just a bunch of individuals, but we're actually an organic unity. We're one race, one family, one humanity. We are not like the angels who stand side by side, who are all created at one time individually. They don't procreate. We're not like them but we're actually organically related to each other. God created us from one man, Acts chapter 17 says. We're not a bunch of piled souls on a piece of grounds, but we're all blood relatives. We're related to one another. And one image that an old, old theologian uses is this, this imagery. We're like branches in a trunk, a mass at its beginning, members in a head. So all of us were there in the trunk of Adam, in his person. 
And so we are connected to that one tree. And because that one tree, the trunk, Adam, sins, now that sin permeates every branch that comes out of that tree because of the organic unity that exists between you and me, between me and Adam. Such that the choice he made for that tree now infects every part of that tree. And so we must come to see that we are in Adam, in that tree, belong to that infected tree. And when we belong to that infected tree, we see, number two, that we are corrupt. We are thoroughly and completely corrupt. We are so corrupt that I would say it this way, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. You're like, what in the world? Stop doing wordplay. It's 9.30 in the morning, right? You didn't, your kid didn't like be perfect for six months and then just start crying and have a bad attitude and became a sinner and he just did one act. The point is, is that, as David says, in sin my mother conceived me. And he's not saying that he conceived me out of wedlock, Okay. What he is actually saying in Psalm 51 is that his whole body from very beginning of his life to the very end of his life is just tainted with sin and it's this deep repentant psalm and he's saying that even in my mother's womb I was sinful. The first sin, the sin for which our original human ancestor is responsible had such deep calamitous consequences that you and I don't even fully understand how deep the corruption goes. We are thoroughly corrupt. We are not like a little bit of a yin and yang. We're not like you got a little bit of light and a little bit of darkness in us. The Bible actually says we are dark. There is no light. We need the light of Jesus to actually come into the darkness. We're not trying to find the light in ourselves and push out the darkness. No, we are completely dark. And this inherent corruption that you and, ha- you and I have in our, in our bodies and our souls is thorough in the sense that it affects your mind, your will, your emotions, your body. There is nothing good in you because you belong to the infected tree. So what I want you to do, don't get mad at me. Smile and wave. It'll be okay. On the next screen, I have about 432 Bible verses. And I thought I could run through all of those, but that would just be monotonous and really, really bad for your soul. Just kidding. But what I'd like you to do is I'm going to give you a few minutes and connect with some people around you and just pick five or six of those. Does that make sense? Just, you know, get up there and have a little sampling of all those Bible verses and ask yourself as you're reading those Bible verses with people around you, and if there's new people that you don't know, meet them, just say hello, don't do this by yourself, okay? We're not a do this by yourself club. Um, We're a family, so let's, you know, get together and let's just do a little Bible study with people right next to you. Open up your Bible, and um, I know I'm going to make you do work. It's just not going to be on the screen, but it'll be okay. You'll, you'll figure out where Hezekiah is, okay? So I'll give you five minutes. That's a joke. There is no book Hezekiah, okay? Um, but just take a couple minutes here and uh, look through some of those verses together, and we'll come back in just a few moments and see what we've learned. As you finish up looking at those verses, I want to ask you... 
anyone wants to just be brave and shout out what you learned from your verse, or what your verse says about the nature of sin within, in regards to humanity. Anyone want to shout out some things you learned? That humanity sucks. Okay. <laughs> well, moving on. Part, what else? What verse is that? I need to find that one. Okay. Yeah, our hearts are our hearts are yes, deceitful hearts. Good. What else? We were dead in our sin. Dead in our sin. Yes. Slaves to our sin. Given over to our sin. Lost in our sin. Like sheep. Yeah. We don't fear God. Mm -hmm. Don't trust him for who he is, yeah. No advantage, yeah. Yes, who can know our hearts but God? We're envious, is that what I heard someone say? Enemies, yes, enemies. I, I'm struck regularly when I think through these concepts of just the, the hostility and, and the opposing nature of how Paul presents humanity in relationship to God. Like, we're not just like, oh, I don't like him. I don't have to hang out with him. No, we're actually enemies. We are hostile in our thinking. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, we read it at, at the opening, is that we know we should glorify God, but we'd rather bow down and worship a phone before we would ever worship him because we choose that. And so what we see is just this picture of corruption being total and complete that it's not just a small thing. It's not just a little problem that we need to get rid of. It actually permeates every part of our being, every part of our life, all of our hearts. And since everything that we think and do and know and believe comes out of our hearts, if that is wicked, everything else we do is wicked. And what sin has actually corrupted is it's corrupted our ability to be human. And again, making you think, we are not humans to become Christians. We are Christians to become human. We weren't just born to ask and pray a prayer for Jesus to come into our hearts so I can go to heaven. We were born with the image of God being marred and broken within us and the corruption of sin that is there, but we still retain that image-bearing element of God of being a human. But sin actually robs us of the ability to be a human. It robs us the ability to actually be who we were made to be. And an implication of this is that sin keeps you from experiencing what God made humans to actually experience. So, who was the true human? We would, if you've been in Sunday school for six minutes, we would all say, Jesus. And I'm not going to go into this huge philosophical debate this morning about what is humanity and what does it mean to be a human. But what I'm going to say is, I'm going to say, Scripture would say this, that what it means to be human is to be in relationships and to have right relationships with God, with yourself, with others, and creation itself. So when you look at Jesus, 
being the true human, was he in right relationship with the Father? Was he able to be in right relationship with himself? Even at the night before his crucifixion, he's in the garden. What's he experiencing? I'm getting to next week's sermon. But what's he experiencing? Fear. He's afraid of going to the cross. But in the midst of that fear, he's so right with himself that where does he run when he's feeling that deep fear? To the Father, because he's in right relationship with him. And because he's in right relationship with the Father that, that breeds right relationship with himself, he then can actually relate to his disciples and the poor and the lost in meaningful, deep, relational ways. But Jesus isn't just right with, with people in the sense of God and, and himself and others, but it also shows you that he's right in regards to creation. Jesus walking on the water is not just like a neat, cool little trick he did. Walking on the water is showing his authority over creation. As we were made to have authority and to rule and have charge, Jesus shows his humanity. And so this is the beauty of the gospel. That when you are united to Jesus, you are in Jesus, you become human. You have the ability to be in right relationship with God, with yourself, with others, and the world around you. And yet, because of the corruption, all of those things get marred. How many of you say the easiest thing to do is just go home and watch Netflix versus go home and have a deep, meaningful relationship with your spouse or your kids over real stuff? Why don't you want to do the latter, the, the hard thing? Because it's so hard. Because of the brokenness that exists in people, in us, with each other. But the most meaningful thing you can do in your life is not sit in front of a TV and watch Netflix. The most meaningful thing you can do is actually be in right relationship with people. And the corruption that is in us, the infected tree that we're a part of, robs us of being human. But it doesn't just corrupt us. Number three, it separates us. It separates us from God. Isaiah 59 verse 1 says this, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. Basically saying, um, guys, God can surely save you. He can surely rescue you. But you know why he doesn't? Because your iniquities, your sin, has separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. The New Testament, Paul picks up on this idea of separation. He uses, well, I shouldn't say he. I'd say the, the King James and the ESV and the more literal, well, yeah, literal, however you want to debate that uses the word alienation. You've been alienated. You've been separated because you were once enemies of God in your minds because of your evil behavior. The sin doesn't just exist within us. It doesn't just corrupt everything about us, but it actually keeps us from God himself. The sin that thoroughly robs us of all the joy from being human is because we are fundamentally and foremost separated from God. 
Remember in the garden we looked at last week? Immediately after the sin that Adam and Eve committed, shame and fear and guilt took over them. And their guilt awakened in them. And when that guilt and shame and fear awakened them, what did they do? They hid. They ran from the presence of God. Because that sin, that act of eating the fruits, whatever it is, demands separation. And between God and man, there is what we would call this relational separation. That we no longer rightly relate to God. We will do everything we can to be away from God. And by the way, this corruption isn't just something that happens to us. It's something that we continue to choose. And so we continue to choose, and that's for six weeks from now, we continue to choose to be away from God's presence. But this relational separation between God and man also is a spatial one as well. Sure, God is present everywhere, right? I mean, everywhere you go, God's there, right? You can't run from the presence of God. But there's a special presence. Like in the Old Testament, God was present everywhere, but he especially was present where? In the tabernacle, the temple, right? In the New Testament, when Jesus comes along, he, he abolishes and fulfills that reality. And so now God is still present everywhere generally, but he's especially present where? In the church. Until one day in the new creation, when God comes back in the person of Jesus and, and destroys this world by fire and creates a brand new world and heaven and earth are united back together in one reality, that presence of God and the Spirit in the church today will become full. What we have is a foretaste. We have a down payment of the presence of God right now. And yet that spatial reality of our separation from God because of our relational separation will one day be abolished. God's presence will be everywhere, especially and generally. What I mean by that is his special presence in the church will fill the entire earth so that you and I will never experience relational or spatial separation from God. And it's not just God generally that we're separated from. There's something specific that we're actually separated from. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. Some of you may have read this and you were timed together. But it says this, Paul writes, They are darkened in their understanding, and they are separated from the life of God. Okay, you're not just generally, generally separated from God. You're separated from His life. And I don't know if you ever thought of this, but what is God's life like? Is he pretty happy? Is he pretty okay? Does his life seem a little better than your life at the moment? Yeah. Because where God is, his presence shows up. That's where life is. You know, like eternal life isn't just living forever and ever and ever. It is. But eternal life is because when God shows up in the new world and we are in that unique presence, there can be no death. And if there can be no death, you can never die. Eternal life is intimately connected with the presence of God. And where God shows up, there's life, there's joy, there's peace. 
There's the fruits of the Spirit. And we will no longer one day, not just be separated from God's life, but we'll be fully embracing God's life. But Deuteronomy chapter 31 uses this phrase, and we read it a little bit earlier too in Isaiah, but it says, My anger will be kindled against them in that day. I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them. And they'll be devoured. And many evils and troubles come upon them. And so they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? Deuteronomy 31 is predicting a future time in Israel's history when a nation is going to come in and ransack them and take over them. And God is not going to be face to face with them. And they're going to say, This is why our God is not with us. It's interesting, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, we see now dimly, but one day we will see what? Face to face. The face of God, seeing the face of God, is that intimate, loving relationship that very few people have ever experienced. Moses, when he climbed up to the mountain, he saw the backside of God. He saw a glimpse of the face of God, that intimate, deep relationship that forever changed him and made him a light bulb for like three months. And yet the reality is is that one day you and I, because of Jesus, will no longer be separated from his face, but will actually see him, have intimacy with him, enjoy his love and his life. In church, we get to experience all of that today in Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, so I don't mess it up because I just thought of this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you're going to have to bear with me because your pastor didn't memorize this passage, but I know it's there and I'm going to look for like 10 minutes and not find it, so just take a nap, get some coffee. We, where does it say we see the face of God in Jesus? 3.13? It says we see God in the face of Jesus. It does. In 2 Corinthians 3 or 4, it says we behold the face of God in Jesus. Okay? And as soon as the sermon's over, someone's going to like text me. All, well, 50 people are going to text me. It's 2 Chronicles chapter 2. You're 14,000 pages off. But my whole point is that we get to behold that face of God in Jesus today. That intimacy, that relational connection with the God and the author of life is available today. And so, again, as we close our time together this morning, the point this morning is not just to make you feel and know how bad you are so you wallow in your misery and walk out of here trying to be better. We come to see how deeply broken and corrupt we are because we belong to that infected tree of sin because it shows us that we need to run outside of ourselves to something other than us to save us. And so turn to Jesus. He will give you the face of God. He will give you intimacy, that intimate relationship that you're longing for. He will meet you where you're at. You don't need to get better to come to Jesus. Because if you need to get better, you'll never come. Because you'll never be good enough. So come. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. 
To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.